Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I'm an entrepreneur and author, a former corporate marketer. Uh, I do a lot of creative freelance work for some listeners and Instagram followers, but also a lot of various small businesses. I'm kind of working on separating out that piece of it as we speak. I also am a Taylor Swift super fan and, you know, some may say a scholar. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome if I got to teach a class, like a marketing class about like Taylor Swift's brand of authenticity that has won the hearts and minds of millions and polarized the hearts and minds of millions. But anyway, we had an exciting day yesterday. She came out with a new song. It is called The Archer. It is not what I was expecting, um, but I, 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 I was pleasantly surprised. If you follow me on Instagram, I did an Instagram live about it, and I'm sure you've heard plenty of my thoughts. If not, go to be there in five's totally casual breezy Facebook group where we talk about all things TS among other things. And, um, I was excited. It's more lyrically why I care about her period. As you know, I'm not in, I'm not in it for the, we are never, ever getting back togethers and shake it offs of the world. I'm in it for the album songs. I think very few artists are album artists and Taylor Swift is one meaning I love a lot of like Rihanna songs. Couldn't tell you a single unreleased song she has. I don't buy her albums. I don't, you know, devour them wing to wing and analyze all of her music. I don't have favorites that aren't singles. Whereas Taylor Swift's singles, you know, a lot of them are great. Like I love Blank Space. I love Delicate. I love Style, um, you know, just to name a few. But I also like my favorite, favorite songs are unreleased. Like You're All Too Wells, like Last Kiss, like... Don't blame me, king of my heart. Call it what you want. New Year's Day. Basically, the entirety of reputation. A lot of red. I love State of Grace. I love Holy Ground. I think that 1989, she did a great job of making the best songs, the singles. But there's also some good ones. Like, uh, I like the bonuses. You are in love in Wonderland. Um, I don't know. I could go on and on. I, I, my point is, I think Beyonce and Taylor Swift are two people to pop mainstream artists that have such dedicated followings that people really care about the albums just as much, if not more than the singles. And I think that is unusual in today's day and age, but by all means, if you've bought a full chain smokers album, let me know. I mean, I think Ariana Grande with the thank you next era moved over into that territory. Cause I think we were interested in her life and her songwriting. Um, when she came out with that really quick second follow-up to sweetener, um, but anyway, I, what was I talking about? Oh, I introduced myself as somewhat of a Taylor Swift scholar. Oh yeah. Her new song, The Archer. I think it's beautiful. I think it's ethereal. I think it's lush. I think it's, it's very Donna Lewis. It's very Robin. It's very, um, uh, the, uh, the introductory song I played Sophie B Hawkins as I lay me down. I know it's hard to get a grasp for it in the first 10 seconds, but, um, it's this sound that I'm so nostalgic for familiar with. And I love so very much. I guess in a modern sense, it's very Jack Antonoff, really. It's very Haim. It's very Lord melodrama. It's a certain uh, sound where it's like this reverberating female celestial voices that he's very good at. That does remind me of the 90s and is very Cyndi Lauper time after time. And I I don't know. It's it's a sound that I really like. I, a lot of people's complaints were that the song wasn't building enough. But I will say that I feel like it's 
perfect for the context that it needs to be in because it's not a radio single. It's a promo single, which means it's released to promote the album, but it's not released to radio stations for airplay for the collection of charting data on Billboard. It won't have a music video. It's the same thing as um, Gorgeous or Call of What You Want. They were released before Rep came out, but they weren't official singles. So that's sad. Thinking about it as being a track five in the context of an album, to me, it sounds kind of transitional. It sounds like it could be somewhat of an interstitial. It sounds like an unfinished song. And I'm interested to see what it leads into for track six, because I do agree that it seems to always be building. There's a lot of chatter online that by design, the song is supposed to always be feeling on the edge of something bigger. And it's supposed to mirror anxiety in that way. And while I do love that that deeper explanation, I think sometimes that's an analysis that is put on a piece of art after the fact because it works. But I don't know if that was deliberate going into it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that would be really cool if they were meta enough to be like, we want this song to feel like what it's about. But I, I kind of I don't know, doubt that even if they say that's what it was, because I really I think that Taylor's been like doing that a lot lately. She did. She doesn't have these big booming endings to songs. And I've been wanting one for a long time. I've been, I want, I want don't blame me. And I want it over and over and over again. And I don't think you can blame me for that because I think that those are the songs. And I was using Coldplay's fix you as an example. I, I love to get lost in a percussion buildup and the songs I like most are, you know, what I've talked about on the podcast before in terms of, I call them pop gospel. They have the musical stylings that a church choir would hear or that would benefit from mega acoustics, uh, but they're not about religion. They're just in that style. Anyway, I I don't know. I would, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding my Don't Blame Me on this album. And I think that The Archer is more so, was released to convey a level of emotional vulnerability we'll see on this album. She had said in radio interviews recently in June in the UK that this album is very pure and it's less, it's not in response to something. She said reputation was in response to something, but lover is about, you know, what songs would I write for the sake of writing songs? And that most are about love in a sense that they're a love letter to love itself. So I think that, people need to be mindful of attributing every single song and lyric to a person, to their own theories, to, you know, be, I don't know. At a point I do, especially with the songs that are good and they are vulnerable and they are wholly written by her. Um, I kind of feel like it cheapens the music itself when we obsess over who it's about. And I love to speculate about relationships as much as the next, next guy. But we're in an era with very little information. I mean, we have seen Joe twice in 2019, and it's almost August. You know, she used to be out and about with her friends a lot more. Like, even, you know, pre-reputation we had before she went on the hiatus, where she probably recorded most of it. You know, we had Tamerica. We had her squad. We had so we had Calvin. We had so much to work with. And then she gets into this mysteriously private relationship with Joe, almost so much so that there's no like reason to speculate or think about her personal life because it's so under the radar. She's never officially talked about him. She automatically likes his Instagram posts within two minutes, which a lot of us think are 
some sort of um, thing Instagram does for people like her in in a sense that everybody's always talking about like, oh, so-and-so liked this post or didn't like this post or follow someone or doesn't follow somebody. Taylor Swift follows nobody, has no comments, and like it seems to be on autopilot for liking certain posts, I think, just to like keep that out of the discussion. And I think it's interesting. I also have a theory that she can she and her and Taylor Nation can see stories without read receipts, without it saying seen, because that's it's really important feedback. I feel like they would sift through, especially because she loves to lurk and she really does read a lot of stuff on the Internet. And Instagram's such a hub anymore. And I think is a more user friendly experience than Tumblr. Maybe not for her, though, because she's into Tumblr. But, um, you know, she doesn't want anybody to see that she's seen it because everybody would screenshot that and be like, oh, my God, Taylor saw my story. And then it'd be like, oh, my God, she saw my story, but didn't respond or didn't heart it. And I just can imagine her DMs are a cluster. So anyway, just a thought. But I don't want to spend too much time on this because I did talk about, about it a lot on my Instagram. But yeah, long story short, I think that to me, the song represents uh, a person that's reflecting on their behavior and their patterns and thinking about their relationships in life and thinking about the role of self-sabotage as it relates to your personal relationships. And when I listen through it, I just hear somebody who's like, well, actually, let me back up for a second. Uh, I, I'll, I think I'll make this episode about track this track track five the archer and um we'll separate out my be there in five hotline questions to another episode because sometimes at first i was like i'm not gonna talk about this for that long and i was like actually i can and i will and i feel like there's an audience for it because i know you guys care as much as i do i too am always waffling between like who i want to be as a person that can gloss over something who i am is is a submarine deep deeply submerged into the sea for a very long time i may have a periscope i may be able to see a little bit out of the water but for the most part i'm just powering through into the depths of a place i i even cannot see the end of or similarly you could you know i am also kind of a submarine sandwich i have many layers and i love cold cuts um so to kind of backtrack for a second. So this is the track five. As we all know, track fives are notoriously vulnerable songs. And we knew a few things about it beforehand due to a few Easter eggs that we got. But of course, we never actually guess what it is because lately it's been a little too obvious. Historically, these hints were more subtle, less... They were... Less um, literal, if you will. After Lover was the album name, I think I should have learned that if I see a bow and arrow, it will be called The Archer, if not Bow and Arrow. But anyway, um, it was written by uh, Taylor Swift and Jack Antonoff, who was co-written, produced um, her past work on Reputation, 1989. I typically love the Jack Antonoff songs. I really like his sound. And um, he worked on... The last track five, which was delicate, I believe. Yeah, because he got her into the vocoder, right? I don't want to misspeak. Anyway, historically, track five, um, delicate, all too well. All you had to do is stay. Uh, was it cold as you in her initial album? I don't know. There's a lot of songs that she said at first she didn't 
realize she was putting her most vulnerable personal music as track five, but the fans noticed. And I want to say starting with, I almost feel like she started it with reputation because I would argue all you had to do is stay. For me, it'd be one thing if she chose this love or you were in love or like Wonderland or Clean or like something else for 1989. But all you had to do is stay is like one of my least favorite songs of all time. Stay like yikes. I, I she like it like woke her up out of a dead sleep in a dream and it wakes me out of dead sleeps because I have nightmares about it. Just kidding. It's not that bad. Um, but I just think comparatively it's not as great. So I think she deliberately made delicate track five and is now going to do this going forward. Um, some people think there are parallels between delicate and the archer. And specifically because somebody said that the archer, a lot of people are talking about online, how the archer is a dive bar in East London. And obviously a delicate, there's, you know, dive bar on the East side where you at. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I need to spend more time with that theory. I don't, I don't exactly know how they intersect, but they do have a similar vocal um, innocence and uh, uneasiness almost. And uh, I don't know, both songs I really feel all of a sudden like this powerhouse pop star is like in uh, insecure, uncertain person approaching somebody as a human in her own like glass case of emotion <laughs> and um, also delicate in the music video. There is the track five graffiti painted behind her while she's dancing in the subway station. And um, she wore a pin that said track five on her jean jacket and entertainment weekly. So I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's tough to say. Does she have the foresight to do a two part song? three plus years ago i don't know but of course people are noticing things like there's an archer like a little cupid on the front desk of the hotel in the delicate video and you know when the lady's doing her lipstick and when all the she walks out and dances in front of people and she's waving in front of them and they can't see her it's very much like you know they see right through me literally they can't see her and i never i didn't totally understand the premise of that delicate video and like still don't to this day other than like this is what it would be like for me if I wasn't constantly being watched. And like, maybe this is who I am when no one's around or I don't know. It's like, I guess, very much dead dance. Like no one's watching theme to a music video that I didn't really feel um, match the song. But then again, it's the whole, you must like me for me, whatever. Um, And you know, her reputation's never been worse, but you must like me for me. Eh, Maybe I do kind of see it. But the only things we really do know, Easter egg-wise, that seem to be deliberate are like the bow and arrow in the lover heart and the cupids in the me video. And, um, you know, I like to think that her overuse of the word Easter egg is because of the inevitable Humpty Dumpty nod. But, you know, they call her the archer. They call me the reacher. So I think that this song... Well, also, um, I was reading about what people were saying because, you know, I've always wondered what what aspects of Taylor's personal life is a media narrative. Like, what has she actually confirmed herself? What are these songs really saying? I think a lot of songs on reputation are just sound to me like very closeted anthems. I it's like none of my business what her sexuality is, but it is my business to interpret her songs 
the way any open-minded person should, which means they can theoretically be about absolutely anything and so much of reputation. I really read as being about a relationship with a woman because it was so grounded in like secrecies, quiet moments, darkest little paradise happened for the first time. Uh, I don't want you like a best friend. Everybody thinks that they know us, but they know nothing about us. Uh, I deep, uh, I loved you in spite of deep fears that the world would divide us. I had a bad feeling. I mean, I know these are all the lyrics I read off to you guys all the time, but to me, those lyrics have never been about um, the protection and privatization of an involuntarily public love. They've been lyrics about a perception of a forbidden love, which are very different things. It's one thing to run and hide from the paparazzi. It's one thing to be like something happens when everybody finds out loose lips, sink ships all the damn time. Like I thought, um, you know, what's it called? Uh, we run hunters, foxes, cages, boxes. Where am I going? What? What's called? What's called? All you didn't. I'm, I'm gonna go crazy. I know places. I know places. Okay. Um, that to me was more so like let's hide from the paparazzi. But in retrospect, you can look at that as being perceived as a closeted anthem too, because she's literally coming in and out of doors on the 1989 world tour. All that to say, I did want to look into, you know, is there something I'm not seeing in this song? Because I think sometimes there are themes that I might miss as a straight person that I don't want to discount. And also, as she said before, like these songs when released, like become about your life and take from them what you want to and interpret them how you want to. And um, I was reading an article. What was it? Vulture. There's... um, Somebody named Jill, I'm forgetting her last name. I'm completely blanking on her last name. She's on Twitter. She's verified. She's a writer for like Nylon and Vulture and a ton of other reputable news sources. I think like Glamour. And she calls herself the overlord of lesbian Twitter. And she's very into Taylor, like Kaler theories, like, Taylor Swift coming out theories uh, talks a lot about Carly Kloss very openly. So, and even interestingly, Tree Payne recently liked one of her tweets, which honestly, the, Tree Payne is a mastermind. She knows everything going on everywhere. She has boots on the ground everywhere. Like she knows who this woman is because I'm always surprised when people so publicly talk about it because people are very careful to be like, very quick to be like, stop outing people. But so when it's like a respected journalist that talks about it, I'm sure people take notice. And Tree Payne liked one of her tweets yesterday, which I was like shocked by. And it's not like she was, you know, power liking a million tweets. They were pretty strategic and they were all by verified checkmarked journalists. But anyway, this journalist, Jill, said in um, an article that the uh, there were that there are implicitly queer phrases laced throughout the song, pace like a ghost, dial alone, help me hold on to you, pacing spirit smoke that isn't there, dying alone and holding on to someone that isn't right for you are all important tenets of the lesbian canon. So I was like, oh, I did not pick up on that whatsoever. I don't, I just find this song to be like, really not, it's like, yeah, about relationships, but it's way more about her. And I think her other songs are kind of like, um, you know, this is how we are together and this is about you or I am the victim or I don't mean that in a bad way, but like this is what you've done to me. And 
I don't know. I just don't feel like we've gotten a ton of like self-aware. These are my, you know, deeper fears and thoughts or whatever, as it relates to her own inner conflict and character and, and everybody has their demons. And, um, I just, yeah, I, long story short, I do think this song deserves the credit of being analyzed outside of a more gossipy narrative, but you know, like I'm not above it. Like, come on, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a submarine, but I'm also a bottom feeder. I like to, I like to get the dirt, but, uh, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I feel like Taylor Swift fans it's it, it, probably not to the general population, but in my world of where I look at a lot of Tumblr and Reddit and Facebook, Taylor Swift fans are always uh, often very divided between people that think her songs have very blatantly queer undertones and those that don't and are really believe in the Joe relationship and, you know, just want to kind of support the 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 media version of her or the the more literal direct version of her that she gives us. And I think both, like, again, I've said this a million times, I just think both sides are fine. I don't know why we're fighting about something because the only answer is if, if, if and when she ever confirms it. Otherwise, just like, believe what you believe, let it rest. Like, let's just talk and have fun. So, you know, for either side of you who listen to this, I don't want you to think that I um, am ignoring or not defending what you believe Taylor is trying to say, I I will always defend as it relates to art. I will defend the fact that what she means is whatever it means to you. I don't think it's meant to be direct. I don't think it's meant to be one dimensional. I don't think it's meant to be literal and, and music and lyrics in nature aren't that straightforward. And I just, I think anytime you're just like fighting an endless, thankless fight, if you believe something so hard and with such certainty, with that level of certainty should come that you don't need confirmation. You know what I mean? And I don't think, I just don't think if you should look for validation in the wrong places. And the only time I will ever go to battle, go to combat as it relates to Taylor is people that discount her um, talent, her contribution, who overgeneralize that she's a serial dater, who say she's catty or, you know, dumb things like collecting friends or who dis like, you know, insult her as a businesswoman or I don't know, like a lot. I just feel like every girl who doesn't like Taylor Swift, the, the first thing they'll say is like, she just seems really fake to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, the th- it's a fake is a hilarious um, default insult. So many people use to describe somebody that they don't like, but they can't figure out why. And it's because however they're acting is something they're not into. And they assume it's but it's like universally likable. So they assume there's got to be something deeper there. But like some people are just likable. I mean, like, I don't know. I'm the fakest bitch in town. I, I put on a smile everywhere I go because I want people to be comfortable. Does it mean I'm a bad person? No, I just don't always. If somebody's like, how are you? I don't want to be like, actually, you know, I'm having a bad day. I feel like my career is going nowhere. And I also know that you don't really want to be talking to me or asking me how I am. And we're just exchanging pleasantries here. So I'm just going to keep it short and summarize something else that'll lead into another conversation topic because I treat life like an improv class. And we all should just be always saying something that can be Yes, and if we want to keep going in a conversation. Am I going to say all of that? No. 
But everything, everybody knows what things are at face value. We all exchange pleasantries. We all gloss over things we don't want to get into. And we all are nice to people to their faces because that's polite. And call it fake. Call it what you want. I just think that people who are kind and who have compassion for others don't always say the first thing that comes to their mind, especially if it's negative, because not every passing thought you have deserves to, to see the light of day, especially if it could hurt somebody. And are sometimes people, do they come across rehearsed? Maybe. But I, I just think the lack of EQ that comes with the alternative is much, 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 much worse. So let's just like stop calling each other fake if we're nice to people. I, I We don't live in an episode of The Real Housewives. Like as much as people love to be like, if you're going to talk about me, at least do it to my face. I'm like, I'm good. Do it behind my back. Like, I'm cool. If I'm actively hurting you or offending you or doing something wrong and you're going to hold and harbor a lifelong resentment for me as a as a friend or as a person on the opposite end of the relationship, I, I do think you owe the other person um, an explanation of how you're feeling because I don't believe you can hold things against people that they don't know that they're doing. Um but also, if it's just kind of a surface level passing negative thought, I just don't see why every life we have to breathe life into every passing thought we have about people. And like, yeah, could Taylor Swift like over the years be a little less polished? Maybe. But like, I, I don't think Ariana Grande is a strong interviewer and it bothers me. I, I think Katy Perry comes across a little goofy in interviews and it bothers me. I actually think a huge element of the respect she's garnered it lies in how um, polished, present, well-spoken, and slightly premeditated she is with her answers because she knows exactly what she wants to communicate and what she communicates is what we all take with us. And she really understands the weight and responsibility of every word she says. I don't. I just don't think that that's fake or calculated. And also, LOL, at anybody who thinks that you can be that famous without being calculated and strategic. Those are qualities to revere and not to criticize. And the joke is, the like couple times Taylor Swift has had a knee-jerk, slightly immature, not well-thought-out reaction, like with Nicki Minaj or some people thought the Scooter Braun thing, like it was lame of her to air publicly. I'm like... Well, this is what you wanted. You don't you wanted her to be more authentic and less calculated. And here it is. And you're still criticizing her. So she literally can't win. So please step off my gown. Like, I don't know. I th Those are the things that make me mad. Not Taylor Swift fans that disagree with me in terms of who her songs may or may not be about romantically. And I think the defense is often like you're calling her a liar if she's not really with Joe. And I mean, there's several different aspects of that, like. We know so few details. They could be on or off. They could have broken up at points if she was with Calvin or Tom or whoever. Like, we don't know those timelines. Did she have relationships in between those timelines? She told us reputation when the when the album comes out that gossip blogs will scour the lyrics for the men they can attribute to each song as if the inspiration for music is as simple and basic as a paternity test and that there will be slideshows of photos backing up each incorrect theory because it's 2017 and if you didn't see a picture of it, it couldn't have happened, right? Let me say it again, louder for those in the back. We think we know someone, but the truth is that we only know the version of them they have chosen to show us. So with that alone, those are her actual straightforward words in a prologue meant to be taken literally. You can't read that and tell me that it's not okay to believe in things we haven't seen and that it's calling her a liar to only believe in what we've seen. If she is telling us to our faces that we think we know her, 
but that the truth is we only know the version of her she has chosen to show us. That is an admission of being strategic and what we know. That's an admission of there being a ton we don't know. And to me, that is permission for us to extract whatever meaning and whatever themes and to take from it what we will. And I think that that prologue itself should have opened up the doors for any and all theories to be fair game, but somehow it divided the fandom deeper than anything I've ever seen. And I just always like to remind people of that because there's not an ounce of me that is trying to be like pointing out, you know, how I think we're being deceived or how she's lying or strategy from a negative standpoint. I am always pointing out strategy as it relates to my fascination with her ability to have us at peak engagement, peak obsession, for us to be losing patience, can't get our hands on her material fast enough, for her to sell out stadiums all over the world, for her to make every fan literally feel like her best friend. I mean, all of these things she does that are very much, I'm sure, hallmarks of her personality, but also actively integrated into her uh, persona because there, like she said, there is her, and then there's like the caricature or the version of Taylor Swift that we know. And I do think that there's a separation there. And I think that that's okay. Like, all, all of us would probably crumble in her position. I, I cannot even imagine what it takes to be as normal as she is. And in that position, having been famous since she was 16, 17, and to just have not absolutely, like, lost her mind. Or at least had, like, a Christina Aguilera, ex-Tina, too dirty to clean my act up phase. Because that, like, maybe what I would have done, except I don't really think I can pull off assless chaps, but... You know, I just think that at a point, a lot of people just have an absolute breakdown and she maybe has, but we haven't really seen a lot of it. But to get back to my point with this song, I think we're seeing a little bit more of her internal struggle. Wow. How am I at 30 minutes? I guess you're not here for the uh, cliff cliff's notes, if you will. Okay, so one of the more poignant things I read about this song that Taylor liked, therefore, to me, is co-signing. Hold on, I'm going to go get a glass of wine. It's like Wednesday at four, but I feel like this is about to get deep. BRB. Okay, I'm back. I actually grabbed a Riesling. I'm not a big white wine drinker. And a semi-sweet Riesling just really tastes like, I don't know, uh, fighting with my college boyfriend who actually wasn't my boyfriend. He wouldn't let me call him that. Uh, Fighting with him at like a horse race or like a fraternity formal or some like outdoor function where I'm wearing a uncharacteristically bright dress because everybody else like wears Lily and I felt like I had to and really I just wanted to be dressed like Orin from Parks and Rec like hair in front of my face all black like probably in bed watching Gilmore Girls but I rallied I rallied (laughs) okay so one thing that I thought was so interesting is that somebody on Tumblr said that The Archer is the song version of her poem from the Rep magazine the uh, called If You're Anything Like Me. I love this poem. I think it's so good. And when I read that, I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is like what I'm having trouble explaining because this poem is really about um, her talking about all of her shortcomings while also kind of simultaneously accepting them and saying, if you're anything like me, you know, I'm sorry, but you'll be fine, kind of. Let me just read it to you because I think it's beautiful. 
If you're anything like me, you bite your nails and laugh when you're nervous. You promise people the world because that's what they want from you. You like giving them what they want, but darling, you need to stop. If you're anything like me, you knock on wood every time you make plans, you cross your fingers and hold your breath, wish on lucky numbers and eyelashes, your superstitions were the lone survivors of the shipwreck. Rest in peace to your naive bravado. If life gets too good now, darling, it scares you. I have goosebumps. If you're anything like me, you never wanted to lock your door, your secret garden gate, or your diary drawer, didn't want to face the you you don't know anymore. For fear, she was much better before. But darling, now you have to. If you're anything like me, there's a justice system in your head for names you'll never speak again and you make your ruthless rulings. Each new enemy turns to steel. They become the bars that confine you in your own little golden prison cell. But darling, this is where you meet yourself. If you're anything like me, you've grown to hate your pride, to love your thighs, and no amount of friends at 25 will fill the empty seats at the lunch tables of your past the teams that picked you last, but darling, you keep trying. If you're anything like me, you couldn't recognize the face of love until they stripped you of your shiny paint, threw your victory flag away, and you saw the ones who wanted you anyway. Darling, later on you will thank your stars for that frightful day. If you're anything like me, I'm sorry, but darling, it's going to be okay. I love that. I like forgot how much I love that. I am full on like chill bumps, going to have to shave again. I um, think that's very powerful. Uh, It's kind of showcasing a lot of strength in your weakness and pointing out the importance of going through these things in order to find oneself and to acknowledge that some things are just pillars of the way you are. And I think um, specifically the third uh set of stanzas that if they're the ones that say if you're anything like me there's a justice system in your head for names you'll never speak again and you make your ruthless rulings each new enemy turns to steel they become bars that confine you in your own little golden prison cell but darling this this is where you meet yourself so in connection to this song to me this song is about the unwelcome justice system in her head in terms of patterns in terms of knowing how she's going to react in terms of wishing she were another way and objectively being able to see that but not being able to feel that i think that it's a very human experience to constantly be uh in between your head and your heart and um I think that like that stanza is like what she's saying here. And it kind of like really, I don't know, it illuminated a lot of it for me. And I think, too, you know, you only know your own experience and anyone or anything that's hurt you stays with you subconsciously or otherwise. And we often react in response to it in in defense of it. And when she's saying you know, no amount of friends at 25 will fill the empty seats, the lunch tables of your past, the teams that picked you last, but darling, you keep trying. Um, I don't know. I just think that she is, has been uh, criticized so many times, been publicly taken down, has felt like she really can't do anything right at times, I'm sure. I mean, even look at, you know, um, the me performance at is the billboard music awards and like 
nobody talked about the performance. All anybody talked about is how she copied Beyonce. And it's stuff like that that I guarantee you is not intentional, but is often pegged on her for better or worse, correct or not. And, you know, I don't know. I just, I would think that to be a person that puts the highest amount of effort into absolutely everything and to misstep and to be accused of like copying or being tone deaf or whatever, when you've probably orchestrated this team to make sure none of that happens would be so thankless and frustrating. And sometimes the hate is louder. And I think that at at times in her career, she's had no choice but to jump to her over her own overwhelming defense. And I think that in defending herself, because she understands her intentions, she understands the effort and she knows where her heart is. And when everybody around you is telling you what you mean or telling you what you said and you're like, no, I didn't. This is this isn't who I am. This isn't what I'm about. It becomes this thing of like, screw all y'all. Like, I'm the only person here who really understands this, who can defend what I'm about and who can move forward and choose to be affected or not. And it's almost this function of, you know, the literal defense mechanism where you develop this justice system and you've learned that there is no middle ground for a person like her, I'm sure. There, you can't trust a lot of people if you are easily used. You do have to be somewhat cut and dry. And I think that being put in an environment where it benefits you to be cut and dry because there's so many shady people, but to be a person that maybe doesn't want to be. Like I think about um, in Michelle Obama's memoir, how she said when she became first lady, they basically like, took her phone and she had to pick like these small tight circle of eight people she could keep in touch with, but nobody else could contact her directly. And like that, that's what I mean by like situational isolation or privacy. She might not want to have to constantly be evaluating everybody in her life, but it gets to a point where, you know, people talking and gossip matters, information leaking matters or music leaking her relationships, her, you know, people talking badly about her to the wrong people, like all of that stuff really matters to a point and can damage a major multi-billion dollar enterprise. And not only that, but her feelings personally, but I think a normal person might bounce back or navigate them differently, but she kind of has no choice but to be more black or white about it. And maybe she is like that in her head. Maybe, you know, the justice system was already there, but to me, everything she says in this poem and in this song is very much like grounded in an inability, the fundamental inability to trust people based on your own experience and based on some of your own anxieties, but an overwhelming desire to want to trust people. And I guess it's kind of the summary of what I see from this song, but we will go through the lyrics if you are even able to, you know, hold on. To quote Taylor Swift, help help me hold on to you. What should I be talking about right now that will not make you end this episode? I think like, can we all kind of relate to the concept of your some of your biggest downfalls are probably what make you good at something? I can't even tell you how many times I see somebody on the internet like calling me rambly, um, or kind of you know insulting how long these are or whatever, and. It like it crushes me. I hate that. I'm I I am so affected by negative feedback because I'm not thinking about the person that's trying to get information quick. I'm thinking about the person on a long commute, on a long drive, who's folding laundry, 
who's nursing their child, who is trying to fall asleep. I'm thinking about the person who needs to be kept company in an otherwise, you know, tedious or idle or, you know, zone out worthy capacity that wants to listen to something in a longer, more in-depth form. And I get frustrated and, and hugely defensive when I'm like, well, this isn't for you. This isn't for that. And I just want to like explain everything to everyone about my intentions, because when you know that you're aware of what you're doing, but it's like on purpose and that it's just not right for the other person, you just want to be like, go away. Like, then don't listen. But you can't do that to everyone everywhere. And I'm like a teeny, teeny speck in this relative to Taylor's like universe of commentary. And I feel that sometimes. And if you're being constantly criticized compared to other artists, everything you do, half the world loves, half the world hates, it, it would get to a point where you had no choice but to completely cut yourself off from it, to completely separate yourself from being able to be affected by it. And that doesn't mean you're not a person who's no longer sensitive. It just means that you've had to put up like hard and fast rules, parameters, things around you and, and to, to protect yourself. And I don't know, it's just like an interesting thing that I can understand on a very, very small scale of wanting to over defend yourself and maybe acting out of character in an attempt to do that in an attempt to protect something. Not because it doesn't affect you, but because it affects you so much. So back to the song. I think that per her likes on Tumblr and whatnot, um, we know that this the archer is a nod to her being a Sagittarius. And I've read a lot about the Sagittarius, not only to write my own song called Half Horse, um, but to... I don't know. I was trying to like predict what the song would be about. Then when I heard the song, I was like, let me see if there's any ties. And I don't, I struggle with astrology. My husband's a Sagittarius. He was born a few short days after Taylor Swift. And I read this and it, it, I identify it more than he, with him more than he does. I identify zero with my astrological sign. I know I like need to look up my moon or rising or something. Um, but then that gives you two more variables to have it be like remotely correct. And that, that's the Tyler Henry of it all. Like, when is this self-fulfilling? When am I like looking for things here? When is this an entirely universal experience? Because like Sagittarius is like, you have a sign. Uh, it says, uh, ruled by the straight shooting archer, Sagittarius energy manifests through enlightenment, travel and truth seeking. Tr curious makes Sagittarius makes us hunger to expand and learn sending us on adventures to determine the meaning of existence blah 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 the description of a sagittarius is very similar to my enneagram number which is four um i i'm very much like a seeker and i obsess about purpose and existence and meaning and like whatever whereas i'm a virgo and it's like you're obsessed with order organization like think of the world a bookshelf you need to organize and i'm like that could not be this could not be farther from the truth i am so disorderly and so almost offended by people hyper obsessive about order because I think that they miss a lot of joy in their own self-fulfilling quest for their idea of order. And um, I don't know. I just think that it's I don't know. It's hard to attribute. But if you identify with yours, that's great. And I'm sure I would like run home with it. I just really have never identified with Virgo. So I've never really gotten into astrology. That said, um, Sagittarius on a good day, you're honest, fair-minded, inspiring, optimistic, enthusiastic, encouraging, dedicated. 
bad day, argumentative, reckless, flaky, preachy, tactless, overconfident. I feel like that tracks with the the, the tone of this uh, song. But again, I said this on the Instagram live, like I don't fully understand the point of I've been the archer, I've been the prey. It's kind of like I've been, I've been the attacker and I've been the victim. I've been, I've had the upper hand, I've had the lower hand, like I've been the dumper, I've been dumped. It's like any, it's like any opposing dynamic of a situation, you know, like I've been the reacher, I've been the settler. It's like, I think she's, I guess the point is more so to say that she's been the one on the attack and the one on the defense. And she knows what it feels like to be treated the exact same way she treats people. And I think therein lies the issue. And I think that that's a confusing thing to process on your own, in your own head, period. And to communicate in, an, in a song is inevitably going to be a little bit frantic and convoluted. But that's kind of the point is that anxiety of how you handle things and how you accept yourself despite the way you likely mishandle things. You know, she starts out saying, I'm ready for combat. And the most like reluctant, delicate voice that is not indicative of somebody ready for combat. And what I was saying on the live is to me, that really sounds to me like somebody who's a reluctant participant in their own patterns and they don't want to be doing it, but they know they're going to. And then and they know they'll do it again. And these types of patterns and issues that we have in exhibit over and over are reason for self-loathing and a level and it's almost harder when you're older and can acknowledge like I do these things and they don't work for me, but I still do them anyway. And it's that self-awareness paired with the active participation in these neuroses or in these bad habits that make a person really start to doubt themselves and to be frustrated with themselves. And in using figures of speech, like cut off my nose, just to spite my face. I hated my reflection for years and years. Like that cuts deep because she's basically being like, I overreact like, and I know I do. And on purpose, like cruelty only works in the movies, but even I struggle sometimes too with like, I see other people being sassy and standing up to people and being like, you know, I give zero Fs. I say what's on everyone's mind, like love me or hate me. I don't care. And everybody else exhibits this sort of false facade of strength that I so badly want, but so deeply don't have. And I kind of, that's what I read from the cruelty only works in the movies line in terms of, you know, you, you do these things because you want to be this type of person, or you think this is going to be effective or you're operating out of self-defense and it doesn't actually work in real life. It, it, it's like you say the words and then you want to take them back. And it's very um, touch and go. And it's very much like you almost know when you're doing something, you're pushing somebody away but you are more scared to get hurt again than to hurt somebody else. But the only person that ends up losing is you because in acting out of that anxiety and that fear, you ultimately end up riding off alone. And you know what? I think what I'll do is separate out. Maybe I'll, I'll have an episode just about the Archer because I know a lot of you are Taylor Swift fans. It's like, I don't want to repeat myself or talk about one thing too much, but if there's things to talk about. I want to talk about them, and I love analyzing lyrics. 
but I also want to read, um, I'm now, I, I opened a hotline that people can call into for the Be There in Five podcast. Cause as I said last night, my like dream end game would be to be like a Delilah, like on the radio, helping people with their hopes, dreams, fears, and regrets. And like questions, meaningful and meaningless, whether it's like, Hey, can you help me think of puns for my um, bridal shower that's boy band themed or, um, you know, help me get through this breakup or with this difficult situation with a friend or whatever? I, I, I like to be prompted and I like to feel like I'm actually being able to help someone in some way. And I think sometimes through those prompts are what, where the best tangents come from that I myself can't always think of in real time. And it's, I don't know, I kind of like off the cuff speaking more um, than planning out any sort of topic. So anyway, I think I'll, I'll maybe separate out that episode. Um, and I'll just like put out two smaller ones this week because I am headed to the premier wine country of Southwest Michigan <laughs> on Thursday with my in-laws. So I need to get these out quickly. Um, but anyway, okay. So... We start with combat. I'm ready for combat. I say I don't want that, but what if I do? Because cruelty wins in the movies. I've got a hundred thrown out speeches. I almost said to you, that is my butterflies goosebumps line. Um, I don't know about you guys, but if I have something to say, I want to say it right. And I am a person that's so mad at first, but I have a very long fuse and I get over it. I'm just not. It's harder for me to be really angry than it is for me to not be angry. And I think sometimes my battle is like how much I want to be mad and how much I want to be fighting and how much I want to cut someone off or out or whatever. But I just I can't like I don't have that kind of uh, uncompromising attitude as it relates to relationships or anything really i'm just not black and white like my entire personality is gray i can see a lot of different ways on a lot of different things and i so rarely can categorically commit to one thing one lane and i some people might perceive this as you know waffling or you know not being steadfast in your beliefs but um one of my beliefs is uh flexibility and compromise. And I think that I value, I don't know, giving anybody within reason, the benefit of the doubt in, in operating out of a place from, from compassion and not just like, you know, sound self-righteous or sanctimonious to go T-Rav. Um, but I, I just, I don't know. I relate to this, like, uh, I say, I don't want that, but what if I do like, because you know how you do something and you pick a fight or you harp on something and you know you don't want to be fighting, but you what, then you hear yourself doing it anyway. And it's kind of like, do we want the drama? Do we just want to solicit a certain reaction that we're not getting? Or, you know, are we being passive aggressive? It's like, we want peace. We don't want to be hurt. We want positive outcomes and then after it's over you're like why why did i do that never again but when you're in the moment it almost seems like it's not optional to bring it up um and i just think we i don't know i find it very relatable an equal sense of you know myopic urgency in terms of 
this has to be solved right now and this is so important and I am right versus being a little bit more, you know, in, introspective and in, it's in retrospect. Like, I think this song's very introspective in retrospect and it's like you can identify with that feeling in real time, but stepping back, you're more farsighted. You're like, I don't know. So when I read combat, I'm ready for combat. I say I don't want that, but what if I do? Because cruelty wins in the movies. I've got a hundred thrown out speeches I almost said to you. To me, it's like I'm reluctantly ready for combat. I say I don't want that. And like, I know it's coming. But like, what if I do? Why am I here? I'm doing it anyway. And saying cruelty wins in the movies. I've got a hundred thrown out speeches I almost said to you is to me like that. um, And I feel like I've talked about this many times. and I don't know why, but I really do think that there's this moment when you're angry, when you're especially, you know, right after a breakup or right after somebody screws you over or like, you know, a girlfriend or a coworker or whatever says something messed up. And like the way your friends and people around you kind of like, you know, pump you up, it gives you this sort of false inflation of I am right. They are wrong. I am going to put them in their place. I do not care what, you know, they say or do my point needs to get across. And that's kind of that um, sort of movie style monologue where somebody delivers a cutting speech or is able to take somebody down in a way that we justify, even if it's unkind, because we're on the side of the protagonist. And that sort of um, that sort of verbal weaponry is something I think we all want to do and we all often attempt and I do it all the time, but it lives in in my iPhone notes. It lives in my computer and password protected word documents. I, and I'm just not kidding when I have a hundred thrown out speeches, I haven't said to somebody when she jumps into the pre-chorus, easy, they come easy. They go. I jump from the train. I ride off alone. I never grew up. It's getting so old. Help me hold on to you. Um, that's kind of what I mean with the patterns. It's like, at a point, you see people come and go. You feel like you know how this whole song and dance works. You start to mourn it before it's over. And in this case, I see her being like, I know they come and go. I know I jump off the train. I, I'll ride off alone. And I also hate that about myself. I never grew up. It's getting so old. Help me hold on to you. To me, that's kind of like, yeah, I... I never figured out the best way to approach and to maintain and to keep whatever relationships these are, whether it's friendships, romantic or otherwise. And I'm tired of it. I never grew up. I don't know why I am this way, but since I know they come and go, and since I've always jumped from the train and ridden off alone, that's probably what I'll do again. But with your help, like help me hold on to you. Like I want you to be the exception. I want this to be the time where you decide to stay, where I decide to stay. And I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things that it's intense emotionally, but it's kind of like the metaphor and the way she's describing her actions. They're so subtle. They almost could be a myriad of different reasons. It's not like she's, you know, bad blood style or, you know, very detailed saying about these things she's going to say or do. It's just kind of like vague. But I guess I'm, that's what it means to me is kind of like I come in for combat. 
I want these easy relationships, but I'm the one making them hard. I know how like I want to be and, you know, how people in the movies and how my friends say I should act. And I write these speeches that I don't even say to you. But I know relationships come and go, and I've seen this a million times, and I know that I'm going to bail and ultimately be alone. And I guess that's because I didn't grow up, and I'm getting so tired of it, and I hope that this situation is different. But then again, it's probably not going to (laughs) be, you know? So when she goes in the chorus, I've been the archer, I've been the prey. Who could ever leave me, darling, but who could stay? I think that's, like, poetic, and the opposition is kind of, I think that conflict is kind of a beautiful thing. I think we all feel that way about ourselves. Like, don't we all think we're such a catch, but also like a total train wreck? If you don't, God love you. But some days I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty great. Like, Greg, you're lucky to have me. But then some days I'm like, I am so sorry that you're contractually obligated to stay in this because I know I'm incredibly difficult. Like, and I think, you know, that is not a bad thing. I think that a degree of that is humility. A harsh degree of that is uh, self-loathing. I think that there's a fine line. And on some days you feel better about these flaws you have than others. And I don't know. I just like totally relate to that. I'm like, I'm the best friend in the world, but also uh, there's a ton of reasons why like I wouldn't be friends with me. Um, so however, whatever relationship it pertains to. So then it goes dark side. I search for your dark side, but what if I'm all right, 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 right here. And I cut off my nose just to spite my face. Then I hate my reflection for years and years. I think, I mean, you know, looking for somebody's flaws is, is something everybody does in relationships, right? You kind of go into it carrying in the baggage from your past relationship and almost expecting to be let down and not even knowing that that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think as it relates to whoever she's talking to in the past, when she's been burned by somebody's dark side, she wants to call it when she sees it. She wants to lock the door before she gets robbed then there's again the conflicting part of her that's like well what if I'm all right like what if I can trust you what if I'm all right right here and upon having that thought it's like I search for your dark dark side but like what if I'm okay it's kind of that again that paradox of who could ever leave me but who could stay um the entire song is kind of like uh not not a question response but it's like a back and forth of um opposing feelings so Then after saying, I look like I'm looking for your flaws, but maybe this is going to be different. Maybe I'm all right. But then I cut off my nose just to spite my face, despite to spite my face. And I hate my reflection for years and years. So to cut off your nose just to spite your face is um, a metaphor for an overreaction, essentially. I'll read it verbatim just to be clear. Cutting off the nose to spite the face is an expression to describe a needlessly self-destructive overreaction to a problem. Don't cut your nose to spite your face as a warning against pursuing revenge in a way that would damage oneself more than the object of one's anger. And I think, like, when you read that, you're like, oh, I get it. You know, it's um, when you think about the, you know, Camilla Bell better than revenge song, revenge quite literally, when you think about bad blood, 
when you think about, um, you know, starting from the Ellen days of talking about Joe on the phone call to uh, Kanye Grammy speech to the, you know, I knew you were trouble speech with the old timey hair at the VMAs with One Direction in the audience. Like when you think about these um, petty public behaviors that unfortunately became the hallmark of her public persona that we all see as something to be totally different. On the one hand, they skyrocketed her to fame. They got her in the public dialogue forevermore uh, because they're very much things that you want to talk about. It also, it's not, it wasn't always things that made her look, made us feel very favorably toward her, um, especially if you don't have the underlying context to understand where she may be coming from. And I think this is kind of a point to, you know, I probably would have called those things strategic to a degree before. Um, but now I'm like, you know, maybe that's the, those are the things that like she decides to do and that her camp probably very much doesn't like. Um, and it's not as planned as maybe I've thought it was in the past. And those that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's like, it's in this moment, it's more important for me to do this really drastic thing to get a reaction out of you, but I'm ultimately the one that's going to suffer for it. And I think about, you know, gallivanting with Tom Hiddleston. I think about um, releasing that she was Nils Soberg when, you know, Calvin was super pissed about it. And then even though that's kind of a cliche, not that's not the right word. That's like a, a popular figure of speech. I don't think it's tired. I think it's well known. Um, to then connect that to then I hate my reflection for years and years in her own words, I think is like a really beautiful way to round out that metaphor because to cut off to know, to cut off your nose, to spite your face is the action that implies the next line. But to say, then I hate my reflection for years and years to not be the person you want to be after the fact is a hard thing. And it's a hard thing to admit. And this is what makes me feel like this song is largely reflective and encompasses a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different relationships and not just one and not just one style. It's kind of the, the um, give and take the push and pull the, are you or aren't you approach you can take to like really any situation when you so badly want to trust it and for it to be the exception, but you're so deeply expecting it to be the norm. Um, and then it goes on to, I wake in the night, I pace like a ghost. The room is on fire and visible smoke. And all of my heroes die all alone. Help me hold on to you. Um, this to me, I have goosebumps again. I, this is, uh, this to me is textbook anxiety. This is the feeling of impending doom. This is the middle of the night where everything feels like an imminent threat, where your chest is tight and your breathing is heavy and... As far as you're concerned, the, the world is crumbling around you. The room is on fire, but the smoke is invisible. It's the definition of anxiety in terms of writing fiction in your mind, setting this scenery in your mind that isn't happening, but it's very real to you. And I think about those, the nights where I felt that way. I often do feel that way. I don't know pace like a ghost that might be something that i'm like i don't know I, I pace like a ghost to me isn't as metaphorical as is i feel like it might be rhyming with invisible smoke because at night 
you know, ghosts just kind of like they don't talk. They don't really like look directly at you. They just are kind of like there and they are like pacing back and forth and for some reason, like haunting whatever it is that they never had closure with in their own lives. And so I kind of just take that more as like, um, who do you see pacing at night? Who's like a shell of themselves? Um, who's harping on, on their past experiences, I guess a ghost, but also the, all of my heroes die all alone was really hard to hear and is really sad. And I mean, my mind is going to musicians, artists, people with extreme fame who die in extremely tragic, under extremely tragic circumstances so often. And their success is what so many admire, but ultimately makes them perish. And as a person with a lot of feelings, if I were in that position and I had that as a form of precedence to what could be applied to my life, it would terrify me. And, you know, I think in our heart of hearts on a bright, lucid day, we know we are in more control than we think and that we're not victims of circumstances beyond our control as it relates to if you don't want to die alone, if you don't want to be, a, you know, uh, getting into things that aren't good for you, if you don't want to be hanging out with toxic people, if you you know, all, all of these things theoretically seem within our control and we feel in control. We want to. But then you have moments where you're so certain that the worst is can and will happen. And I just not only in her position, see myself feeling anxious about who I can trust and where my career is going and what everybody's chirping and saying about me that I'm not seeing, but also the concept of this has the ability to drive me so crazy that I'm my own worst enemy, that I'm my own demise. And I just can totally understand why that would make you pace and be riddled with anxiety late at night and why it makes your relationship with yourself complicated. Because if you're already exhibiting behaviors that you don't necessarily want to be um, like, you know, being ready for combat, like writing these speeches, like riding off alone on the train that you objectively can see you shouldn't be doing. Who's to say that all the things that made your heroes die on the loan, you're ultimately above too, because are they, you know, is it a, is it correlation? Is it causation? Like who's to say? So anyway, I think that's a really intense line, a really deep line and something that I just, you know, we're so quick to discount people's feelings because they're in a position of fame, of fame, of fortune, of power. Um, but I think any of us realize on an individual level that we would feel no less us with money. If anything, you feel everything intensifies um, with fame, being under a microscope, whatever. And I think when you put yourself in that situation, you realize how much of a front she must have to put on all the time because she's not allowed to complain or she's not allowed to have bad days. And she has what so many people want. But when, when that is your normal and that any therapist will tell you, you don't operate, you, you can only heal operating out of your own normal pain is pain. And when you start to compare pain is when you start to trivialize, minimize and not work through what you're going through. You, you start to avoid it and ignore it. And I just think she lives, she's in a weird position where, you know, she probably has more internal struggle than anybody, but 
when you talk about how you struggle with fame, people are like, oh, it must be so hard to have your own plane. It's like, how are those two things the same? But, you know, through her music, we should acknowledge and uh, really think about kind of what it's like on that side. Because if we've all benefited for years and years from her art and her output, I think we owe her the benefit of the doubt and the respect to be like, damn, this must be hard. And even if you don't pick me for a secret session, and even if you don't, you know, you mislead us with countdowns, and even if I don't love all of your songs, like, thank you. Thank you for sacrificing your personal life, your privacy, at times your probably mental well-being to do something much bigger with your one fleeting life, which is to pour all of your time, your emotion, your energy, your creativity into creating art that touches, reaches, inspires, brings joy to millions. And even though all of her fans are incredibly different and by whatever alchemy that brings our individual nuanced, outspoken, brightly colored, stubborn threads together that creates a broader fabric of people all believing in the same thing. However, she managed to uh, design it, to engineer it, to keep it intact over all of these years when so many people's careers just cannot is incredible. And um, I just don't think we should uh, ever take that for granted. And I think it's really great, especially if you're a mega fan, to take a minute to really think about what all of this could uh, mean in a deeper sense, in a more humanizing sense. Um, so I do love Help Me Hold On To You too. Um, I've been the archer, I've been the prey, screaming, who could ever leave me, darling, but who could stay? So she at first just says, who could ever leave me? Then she says, screaming, who could ever leave me? That's an interesting um, transition. And then it starts to say, I see right through me. I see right through me because they see right through me. They see right through me. Can you see my, right through me? They see right through me. I see right through me. I see right through me. And I think this transition of um, they to you, to me, to like every uh, different perspective of a person I like it. I mean, artistically for the song, I think it's really interesting how it shifts for second, third person. But also I struggle with this because when you think of somebody seeing right through you, it's like, you know, they see through your facade, um, through the mask and they can't really figure they they see you for your true intentions and not for what you're putting up. And it's just kind of I don't know, it, it suggests that you I was about to say you see right through them. But, you know, I think we all know what that means. It's like, I know what you're doing. Like, I know what it looks like, but I also know your intentions behind it. So what I struggle with here is like, does it mean, you know, I'm trying to act like a person who is more of like the, uh, you know, in, in to quote, don't blame me. I've been breaking hearts a long time, toying with those older guys, just play things for me to use. You know what I mean? Like the the more blank, spacey, irreverent parody of herself or like the person she's supposed to be versus who she is. Because what's confusing to me is if you can see right through her, it would mean that what she's putting up is the more desirable thing. But what is actually going on is the less desirable thing. But to me, I would think that if somebody can see right through you, when you're trying to be artificially strong, 
it's actually an endearing thing where they're like, hey, are you okay? Like, I'm not leaving. Like, show me who you really are, your true colors. But this is kind of like, you don't trust me. I don't trust myself. And as I said that, I just realized, wow, that's a lyric. And look what you made me do. I don't trust nobody and nobody trusts me. But she never said she doesn't trust herself. So here we have, I don't trust nobody. Nobody trusts me. I don't even trust me. And that's what I was saying earlier about this is the first time we're getting that third element of self awareness and deprecation that just hasn't really been this spelled out in other songs. And I guess, I don't know. I don't know if people can see through the, into the insecurity. I don't know if people can see that she's pushing them away. I don't know if people can also see when they get involved with her friends or otherwise, like this is over before it started because she's incapable of trusting people. Like, I don't know, whatever it is, they can see her, for who she is, for better or for worse. It, to, in this context, it doesn't sound positive. And then we get into Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put me together again because all of my enemies started out friends. Help me hold on to all, help me hold on to you. To me, this is like, Humpty Dumpty is kind of one of those weird nursery rhymes that has an an origin that's like old and irrelevant to modern culture. And it doesn't really have like a huge point, but in modern culture, it's often used as a metaphor for something with a level of fragility going up high somewhat recklessly and then falling to irreparable damage. And to me, all the King's horses, all the King's men, I think, you know how she pointed out in the L article about lyrics like baby, baby, pull me closer in the backseat of your Rover. Sometimes lyrics that are, pretty straightforward or memorable or you know don't seem like overly artful or the ones that are like the most memorable and easy to sing and that people actually want more of those types of lyrics and to me this is one of those lines that when I first heard I was like I don't love that but that also happened to me with um the Range Rovers and the Jaguars and now I can't imagine getaway card without it um but I think that this isn't just like I have all of the resources, all of the people trying to help me at my disposal, and they still can't fix this. And that is an empty feeling. It's like I have every reason to get past whatever issues I'm dealing with that I'm talking through here, the lack of trust or the, um, you know, kind of duplicitous nature of my personality and the wishy-washiness, whatever she's trying to say. I have every reason to fix this and every person who's tried to help and every person who's tried to stop me from doing this, from making enemies, from having knee-jerk reactions, from, you know, doing these things that are immature because I never grew up and they're getting so old, but they can't even put me back together again. And similar to Humpty Dumpty, he was shattered beyond repair. And when you think of that emotion, emotional equivalence of being like, I, I can't even be helped at this point. I can't help myself and nor can all the king's horses, all the king's men, everybody in town, the metaphorical town, like I am a lost cause. That's, a, that's very sad. Um, but we've all been there, you know? That's the thing about anxiety is that it's fleeting. It's a feeling of impending doom that is your reality in real time that uh, passes and it becomes something that so, seems so irrational. You can't even believe how consuming it was at the time. And... I just when I hear this song, I hear somebody in an episode in a highly anxious episode that is not just processing the individual situation going on, but then doing the thing where you project it onto every single thing that's ever going to happen into your life. Like 
I'm only going to be a failure. None of my relationships will work. There's no way this is going to end well. Like, I, I kind of see this on The Bachelor all the time when the girls are in the limo and they leave and they're crying. It's never about the guy that just dumped them. It's about how it, it's a trigger, right? Like, it's a gateway to selectively choose a common denominator that for that moment defines you, that in no way is a representation of you, your life overall, but in that moment is representing something bigger and consuming. And um, I just think that this is a song of her, like kind of, um, for lack of a better word, spiraling in that fashion that we all do, especially late at night, especially when you think like the world's on fire, everything around you is crumbling, everybody's going to die soon. Like, you know, we all have those nights. So then I think to kind of wrap it up nicely, she says, because all of my enemies started out friends, help me hold on to you. She's kind of like, how can all the king's sources, all the king's men couldn't put me together again? Like nobody can help me. I have every reason to be helped. I, I, I feel like I should be able to figure this out, but how would I ever be able to see this coming? How would I ever be able to predict this accurately? Everybody that I hate was somebody I love. Every, like, it's something that I'm doing or something that happens when I get close to people ultimately turns them into enemies. And I don't see, I don't know how to get ahead of it. And it's like that, that's like a very helpless feeling of like, you know how when you're mad or in the moment and like I, in, at least in my marriage, I'm always like, let's try to outlaw the words always and never or and all or nothing unless we're singing that absolutely fantastic O-Town power ballad because always and never all or nothing is a speak the, the, the general, the generalization of a person projected off of one isolated incident it's so harmful and so offensive to the other person, but you do it in effort to exaggerate to to get your point across because sometimes you want it to sting. And I almost think in these moments of anxiety, you yourself are the one doing the exaggeration and the emphasis to sting yourself because you really think it's that bad. And I, I guarantee you, she has way more friends than enemies. And she never says all of her friends turn into enemies. She says all of her enemies started as friends. And I think that that's just an impossible thing for her to forget is somehow in some way these relationships go south. And um, in that moment, she's like, oh, my gosh, like all of them. Like this is I, you can't help me. Like how. How am am I at odds with people that I once was close to? And, you know, I don't really like see that for Kanye and stuff. But like if she's not really friends with Carly and as it relates to Katie. And it's funny because now I'm like, who are these enemies? She talks about her enemies, like big reputation. I got some big enemies. And like she talks about enemies a lot. And I'm like, does she really have this many enemies? And there's just a lot we don't know about publicly. I mean, probably given that she and Katy Perry made up like a year and a half ago and we didn't know about it again. We only know the side of her she chooses to tell us. I feel like she's got to have a lot more enemies than we maybe even realize. Um, or she uses the word enemies too liberally. Because, like, I actually don't think I have any. Do you guys? But I'm not the type of person that can have an enemy. Because I would rather I, I would rather them like me than me get my point across. I don't know if that's, like, a screwed up value system. But I just am not a person who's able to 
take hard and fast stances, like I said earlier. Anyway, help me hold on to you. So again, this song is a, is a, is a pull and push and pull of like, this is what's going to happen. But like, if, you know, unless like with your help or like maybe it won't or like maybe you're the one it's like even even with the worst precedents even with everything not working in my favor despite all of it i have a thread of optimism and that thread of optimism is that she ends each pre-chorus with help me hold on to you and i think that just shows the hopeless romantic the forever optimist the archer is always pointing his arrow, his or her arrow, up toward the sky, trying to aim at the thing he or she wants. They're very focused. They're very adventurous. They very much are looking for something greater. And, um, you know, it's like, despite my earthly practical experience, I still hold out the abstract hope that things will change. And I think as people, we always should um, assume it will get better because it does. And she goes into the chorus of I've been the archer, I've been the prey, who could ever leave me, darling, but who could stay? I see right through me, I see right through me. I I love the reverberating female voices, the choral. I I mean, it's it's stunning. It's transcendental. It's celestial. It's 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 90s. It's lush. It's I I keep saying the same words over and over, but it's very it just it, it it. it makes me feel like I'm watching the Pure Moods commercial when Enya comes on and I'm just, you know, and did I just participate in an involuntary pagan ritual or am I just hearing the reverberated sounds of beautiful female voices like a siren in the night? I, who's to say? But then she goes into who could stay, who could stay, who could stay, you could stay, you could stay. And I love that goosebumps again. Um it's the conflict and I'm repeating myself, but I just, I can't drill it home enough. The more I get into the song, the more I feel like I weirdly understand it, despite it being completely at odds with itself and to top it all up to come full circle of, I have my moments of anxiety. I have the more brief moments of clarity. I'm going back and forth. I think I'm doomed, but I'm a little bit hopeful to be like, who could stay? You could stay, but then to come right back to combat, I'm ready for combat, is to go through and succumb to and to be stuck in your very own cycle that prevents you from getting the outcome that you want, which is the source of your anxiety is feeling like you have no control over that outcome. And this is why this song is so complex and so intense and so deep. And I think that it is the most human song that a lot of us could maybe relate to more than we even realize and that I want to do justice um, to the analysis because maybe I'm wrong and maybe you disagree. And, you know, based on how it's been going with the literal Easter eggs, she'll probably do an interview on some BBC radio in two days and be like, yeah, one time I was at summer camp and like we were doing like some combat routine and then you know, I got on a train and I just happened to hop off the train, but then I had an archery lesson. And uh, yeah, I was like, man, I really love archery. Do I want to stay at camp? Do I want to go home? I pace like a ghost. And then, you know, I was worried that people saw I wanted to leave. And then I went and climbed the rock wall. And just like Humpty Dumpty, I fell. And everybody at camp became my enemy because they weren't there belaying me in the strong way you should and by engaging their core at the end of the ropes. And you know, for that, I find myself to be very emotionally complicated. Who could leave? Who could stay? I decided to leave camp and ultimately only to go back next summer, repeating my cycle. And that is what the song's about. And I'm going to be like, OK, cool, cool. 
regret this 90 minutes, but uh, I had a great time. And that's all it's about anyway. I, if you can imagine how annoying I was in a lit class in high school, this is so interesting to me. And it's uh, to analyze a song or a piece of art so intensely, despite it being something that's just meant for entertainment, for joy, for aesthetics, for audible sensory purposes that really has no uh, tangible, practical impact on anything in your day to day or going on in the world. Something about that is very important and poetic. And um, I, the thing I, I prioritize, I think that the unexamined life is not worth living. That is not a Kate Kennedy quote. That is a Socrates quote. I though I know the two are easily intermixed. <laughs> and uh, don't let anybody ever shame you for analyzing something into the ground. Don't let anybody ever shame you for being passionate about anything. Don't let anybody ever make you feel less than for caring too much. Because as I said in the <laughs> podcast about Marissa Fuchs, the influencer proposal, I will always defend and stand up for effort in any format and putting effort into things doesn't make you less cool. Caring doesn't make you less cool. And I am not worried about a world in our future where people are trying too hard. And I, it's why I hate the term tr try hard and I hate the term thirsty and I hate like calculated strategic, like all these things that are shaming people for, putting effort into something I think are so misguided because the downfall of humanity isn't effort, it's apathy. And the second we started to discourage people from caring about things, be it something you understand or you don't, it's the second you need to look at the mirror and realize that you are the lame one because you care too much about how somebody cares about something else. And maybe you should dump that energy into actually finding a passion of your own. And that is what I will say to any Taylor's of Tater person that leaves me a bad review for overthinking this song because I don't care. And by I don't care, I mean I do care. And I will harp on your review. And I will hope you'll change it at some point. I might try to figure out your username so I can reach out to you directly and have a more productive conversation about it. Because that is my cycle. That is my version of combat ready for combat. I take really hard stances, hot takes on this podcast. That I'm like, eh, could have backpedaled. Could have said that a little bit, uh, a little bit more lightly. But what are you going to do? If you mean it in the moment, I say you leave it there. Because your original, this is why I ramble on these podcasts, because I hear myself say things I didn't know I thought, I didn't know I felt. And that's kind of the magic of having a platform and being a person that thinks too much is it's a, such a uh, cathartic form of information and emotional processing that I'm sorry, I guess, that you are on the receiving end of. But at the same time like I said earlier about vulnerability, you kind of hope that despite any negative feedback you get from it, that the positive outweighs that and that you're hopefully touching somebody, maybe not in volume, but hopefully at least in depth in a way that, you know, is going to ultimately mean something or help them or inject joy into their day or whatever. And it's kind of offsets all of the downsides and, you know, for those of you that are like, I can't believe she just spent 90 minutes talking about one song, I am concerned for you as it relates to an 18-song album coming out. <laughs> um, just kidding. I'll continue to do the regular podcast too, but maybe I'll do individual song analyses on Patreon or something because I do think this is fun. And yeah, um, I am going to record when I have time 
the first iteration of um, my Be There in Five hotline. I have weeks where like I'm just not interested in what's going on in the world. And if I'm not interested, I try not to talk because as you can see, it doesn't I don't need a high volume of things to talk about. I just need something I'm really interested in. And it, it, like this is one song I just talked for an hour and a half. Like I don't like to talk just to talk or I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like if this is my format and nobody is uh, controlling how or when I do it. To me, the quality is so uh, dependent on the content and when I don't feel like I have the content, I'm just uninspired. However, when I do my Instagram live and people brought up that I should do a hotline, I got so excited. I got so much energy. I try to follow what makes me feel energized. My goal in life is to be like Delilah. Uh, and I had people call into my hotline today. So I'm excited to answer those questions tonight or tomorrow before I leave for, as I said, America's true true optimal terroir for vines in southwest michigan and i'm not making fun of michigan i'm laughing because this turned into drama on my instagram because the responses to like where should i go in michigan were like don't go you know go to california go to canada why are you going there you can go to this one restaurant and this one wine is tolerable i'm like geez people relax it's not like i was like I, it just was funny. People thought I was like foregoing Siena in Tuscany to like go to, you know, St. Julian, Michigan, but really it's a halfway point between me and my in-laws. And it's a wine country is a wine country. Like I'm not, I'm not discerning enough to be above a lovely, you know, Northern Michigan cherry wine. If it gets you drunk and does the job and lets you have a fun conversation and, you know, who am I to judge? If you're making it, especially if it's like a, a family vineyard, homemade, their own vines. I'm not going to a Franzia convention. I just respect anybody dedicated to their craft. And honestly, if your environment is perhaps the least hospitable for the thing you're trying to do, all the more respect, because we all do know that it's probably not the optimal terroir. for That it's like rural juror, level, rural juror level, levels of difficult to say for 30 Rock. Terroir, rural juror. Anywho, gotta get going. As always, you can support me through Patreon. I do bonus episodes. I don't set the frequency anymore because I just, I don't know. I want to manage people's expectations. I do them when I can. I do them as in-depth as I can. There's a lot of good conversations with my sisters. I am like two-thirds of the way through Hamilton um, deep dive. As I said, it's like a production issue for me because I'm like putting in the songs that I'm talking about. And it's just, I don't know, laborious than my other ones. Um, and... In general, it's just kind of co-signing that you want the podcast to keep going, that you like it, that I'm adding value to your life. And it just helps me out a lot because it's the only way I get paid as of now. And um, yeah, love you tons. Thanks for joining. If you're new here, come back. We have lots of fun combos about pop culture, celeb gossip, deep dives into hot stories of the week and whatnot. And this will be the first of what I'm sure are many, many uh, lover-related conversations to come. But if you're not into it, don't worry, because I will do both because I this is this is a podcast done by a Taylor Swift fan, but not a Taylor Swift podcast. Um, so I will always be, be sure to provide balance the, the best that I can. And um, I'm so appreciative to anybody who is willing to hear me ramble, just like Taylor Swift has been the archer and she's been the prey. I've been the rambler and I've been the eye roller and I see both sides of it and I hate myself for it. But I also think it's what's gotten me far. So <laughs> What am I going to do? <laughs> anyway, guys, I hope you have a good week. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, review. 
Follow me on Instagram at be there in five. Email any input, questions, concerns, topic to podcast at be there in five.com. And remember that is always F I V E, not the number five. Um, buy my book, Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star, currently on sale uh, on Amazon against my will. They don't tell me when they're doing that, but it's part of some book promo. And um, call the hotline 312 379 9676. 312 379 9676. 800 588 2300 Empire. I mean, I just feel like a broken record here, but you can find it in the uh, bio of the at be there in five podcast Instagram, which you should also follow. So anyway, I'm going to sign off with under 10 seconds of a hopefully audio. I won't get in trouble for of songs that I do purchase <laughs> of, um, uh, another song that people are saying this song sounds like, and it's a beautiful song. One that I love. We all love. It's like the best movie soundtrack it's the best driving soundtrack the best time gone by sentimental nostalgic soundtrack it's the only scene in like parks and rec that like really i feel so hard when um ann and leslie and for only a moment april can all connect over the one thing they love which is great pop music and i know at times we as swifties we're sometimes the april ludgate and we're sometimes the Ann Perkins, but the important thing is, is we all freaking love time after time. So with that, as always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Time after time. If you fall.